We're going to spend some time in Isaiah chapter 6, obviously, as we've read together already, thinking about this incredibly familiar passage. And what I want us to think in particular about today is the motivation to join God on mission, right? Why do we join God on mission? I grew up in the church my entire life. I like to say that, you know, I was nine months in the womb, Southern Baptist. I mean, we're talking long, long, long track record on my dad's, on my mom's side of the family, we're uh, I don't know how many generations we go back of Texas Southern Baptist, but it's been a long time. And as I grew up in the church, it seemed to me that the primary motivation that I was taught to join God on mission was a sense of duty, obligation, or obedience. The Word says it, our responsibility is to do it. Now, I don't want to neglect or diminish the reality that the Word says it and we're called to do it. There's a certain expectation, there's a responsibility we have as followers of Christ that we find our marching orders, if you will, in the Word. And so as we come to the Word and we uh, res- you know, uh, meditate on the Word and, and it resonates in our mind, we, we obey what God has told us in His Word. But when I come across this text in Isaiah chapter 6, I'm convinced Uh, And and I would argue that maybe outside of the Great Commission, this is probably the most well-known mission text in all of Scripture. I'm convinced that this text speaks to uh, a much more substantive motivation to join God on mission than merely that of obeying. Now, if, if, as I grew up and as I've heard many sermons preached on mission and, you know, that sort of thing, and in our family, mission was a pretty important part of our lives. I mean, we used to take family vacations to Jericho Foreign Missions Week at Ridgecrest Camp in, in, in North Carolina. I mean, we spent a lot of our time with missionaries. My dad was in, in the Air Force, and so we grew up for a while in Southeast Asia going to a church pastored by IMB missionaries, and my life was sort of saturated by mission. But as I would hear these sermons, if it wasn't obedience or obligation or duty that was sort of preached as the primary obligation or motivation for mission, then the need of the world was the next thing. And there's no doubt that the need of the world should compel us, right? We live in the southeast. I live just about an hour and a half south of here in Chattanooga, just on the outskirts of Chattanooga. And according to Barna, the Barna Research Group, Chattanooga is the most churched city in North America, that there's more churches per capita in Chattanooga than any city in in North America. And I would argue that that may mean that Chattanooga is the most churched city on the planet, So Chattanooga really is the buckle of the Bible Belt. The American Bible Society says that Chattanooga is the most Bible-minded city in the U.S. Knoxville is not that different. Alcoa here on the outskirts of Knoxville, it's not that different. It's very similar. And yet, even in this incredibly Bible-saturated, church-saturated context that we find ourselves in, I can tell you at least in Chattanooga, only somewhere between 15 to 20% of our population finds themselves in an evangelical church on any given weekend. Now, a higher percentage than that would claim affiliation with evangelical churches. But if you talk about those who are actually practicing their faith, those who are in church week in and week out, and of course, most of us would be convinced that even those among those who are in church week in and week out, there may be many of those who are not actually followers of Jesus Christ, and that percentage goes from 15 to 20% and begins to decline even from there. So even in the most Bible-saturated, church-saturated environments, the vast, vast majority of the people who call that area home likely do not know Christ and are not walking in relationship with him. So there's no doubt that the need is significant and ought to serve as a motivation. But I really think when we look in Isaiah, we look at Isaiah chapter 6, we find something altogether more significant and frankly more compelling when it comes to joining God on mission. 
And so what I want us to do is I want us to walk through this text together and I want to show you three characteristics from this text that help us understand where mission, passion, where a commitment to mission is generated, how that helps us to understand ourselves and the world around us more lightly, uh, more, more accurately, and then how that compels us to join God on mission. First thing I want you to see this morning as we begin walking through this text together is that mission begins when we see the character of God. Mission begins when we see the character of God. We see this in Isaiah. Isaiah finds himself having something of a vision, right? And he's ushered into the throne room of God. And as he begins to sort of look around him and take note of the throne room of God, look at the words that he uses to describe the throne room. He uses words like, you know, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord and he was what? Seated on a high and lofty throne and the hem of his robe filled the temple. So he has this robe. He's sitting on this elevated structure on a throne and he's wearing this robe that's so large that it cascades down from the throne and consumes the entirety of the room. And he describes seraphim standing above him. And these are majestic creatures. We'll talk a little bit more about them here in just a moment. And they were declaring the greatness of the one sitting on the throne, echoing back the greatness of him back and forth to themselves. And his greatness was so substantive, the glory of God was so significant, verse four, that the foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of these angelic creatures' voices and the temple was filled with smoke. What, what Isaiah is describing to us as we begin this passage is being stunned at the majesty of God. The image that Isaiah sees is a reminder of what ultimately grounds all of our work in mission. We, we ought to be compelled to some degree by the need of humanity around us. We ought to be compelled by the command of God as found in his word. But everything begins with the character of God, the person of God, the glory of God. And I would argue that it is the character of God which validates God's ability to command us toward obedience in the first place. Arthur Pink, an old theologian, long since uh, passed away, was describing the sovereignty of God or the authority of God. And uh, he said this about the sovereignty of God. He said, what do we mean by the sovereignty of God? We mean the supremacy of God, the kingship of God, the godhood of God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that God is God. Now, what we've done in contemporary American culture, particularly when it comes to the church, is we've seemed to sort of transition our theology to the extent that we diminish God and elevate humanity. Right? We're, and I understand, by the way, the motivation for this. And I actually think the motivation for this is generally centered in the right place. Right? We're trying to help understand God. We're trying to grasp God in our finiteness as human men and women. We're trying to better comprehend who God is. And so we use anthropomorphic terminology or, or, or human-like terminology to try and describe God and God's character. But what we do when we do that often is we sort of diminish the grandeur and the greatness of God. We try and take incredibly difficult concepts like the Trinity, for instance. We take the concept of the Trinity and we try and boil it down to simplistic definitions some of my favorite, you know, is you've probably heard these before. How do you describe the Trinity? Somebody said, well, the Trinity's like an egg, right? You've got the shell, you've got the white, you've got the yolk, three distinct characters all unified in one thing. My daughter's particular, my youngest daughter, uh, Kessid Noel, is with us, who was with me this morning. Uh, my older daughter, my son, and wife are back home in Chattanooga. Their favorite explanation of the Trinity is that it's like... Um, it's like a shampoo conditioner all in one, you know, like an all in one shampoo and conditioner. There's distinct characteristics, but they're all consumed in the same container. All of those are simplistic. And I understand why we try and define God in that way. In my job, 
uh, as, as the director of programs for the Multi-Faith Neighbors Network, I spend a lot of time working with Muslim imams and Jewish rabbis, as well as evangelical pastors, both here in the U.S. and all around the world. And this concept of the Trinity is one of those sticking points as we communicate with Muslims. It's a distinguishing characteristic, a distinction between Islam and Christianity. And we're constantly trying to find ways to get our arms around it. But it's also true that even for, for those who live in our neighborhoods around us who grew up with some quasi-form of Christianity, the Trinity's tough. And so we try and boil it down and distill it to make it understandable. But my fear is that when we do that, we misappropriate the greatness, the bigness, the grandeur of God. We've, we've ceased to recognize that God is significant. We even do this in the music we sing sometimes, in the way we think about God. God is our friend, and God is our friend, and I'm grateful that God is our friend. I want God to be a friend to me, but God is not a friend to me in the same way that uh, there's five guys that are really, really close to me, in the same way that those five guys are my friend. Right? God is other. Matt Redman is a contemporary songwriter. He's from Great Britain. Uh, he's now on staff at Mariner's Church out in California, but he said this one time about the otherness of God, the greatness of God, the sovereignty of God. He said, otherness gives us a sense that God is so pure, so matchless, and so unique that no one else and nothing else even comes close. He is altogether glorious, unequaled in splendor, and unrivaled in power. He is beyond the grasp of human reason, far above the reach of even the loftiest scientific mind. He is inexhaustible, immeasurable, and unfathomable, eternal, immortal, and invisible. The highest mountain peaks and the deepest canyon depths are just tiny echoes of his proclaimed greatness, and the blazing stars above the faintest emblems of the full measure of his glory. Now look, I've been raised in the church my whole life. When I was 13 years old, my dad retired from the Air Force and became a pastor, and he's been a pastor now for about 30 years. He's a director of missions, probably about an hour or so west of here right now. I have an undergrad in theology, I have a master's of divinity, and I'm almost finished with a PhD in theology. I mean, I feel like I've studied the Bible and studied God just about as much as anybody could possibly do so. I've been a pastor for over two decades, and I love the fact that there are times when people come to me and ask me questions about God, and my answer to them is, I don't know. I don't know. God is different than I am. He's more substantive. He's, he's altogether unique in comparison to me, and I don't want to serve a God that I can fully grasp or understand. I don't want me on steroids to be the God that I worship. I want to worship a God who is wholly other, as Arthur Pink and Matt Redman and others have tried to describe. And this is the God that Isaiah comes face to face with in the throne room. Now notice, if you will, one of the most intriguing parts of this text is found in verse 2. When it begins to describe, verse 2 and 3, the seraphim who stood above them. Do you understand this description of the seraphim, these majestic angelic creatures that were hovering on either side of the throne room of God, these huge, enormous creatures, six wings with two they flew on either side of them, with two they covered their face, with two they covered their feet. If these characters, if these angelic beings were to show up in most of our, even in most of our churches today, right here, you know, on the spot this morning, most of us would find ourselves fearful, in awe, and tempted to worship it. Because it's so majestic, so holy, other, unique, powerful, clearly not of this world. And what's compelling to me about Isaiah's experience in Isaiah chapter 6 is these altogether unique creatures who, for most people in the world, we would be compelled to want to worship them because of their greatness. They themselves are bowing in worship and functioning in service to the God that is in the middle of all of them. 
Notice the way that they, uh, they are described to us. They cover their wings, uh, they, they use two of their wings to cover, cover their face. This is a, a way of describing to us sort of their unworthiness. We're not even worthy to look upon the greatness of the God who's in front of us. Remember, this is a consistent refrain with the God in Scripture. When God brings Moses and Moses says, I want to see you. God says, you can't see me. If you saw me, you would die. So he covers him in the rock and he passes by and he removes the covering just as the very tail end of the glory of God passes by. And that covers him and radiates out to the rest of Israel for them to see and notice. This is a constant refrain. They cover their face in a sign of unworthiness. They cover their feet the feet in, in this, at this time would have been sort of emblematic of those private areas of the body that we sort of keep uh, covered from the rest of the world. This is an expression not only of unworthiness, but of abject humility as they cover this portion of their, their, their bodies. And then with two wings, they flew. This is an indication that they were always at the ready, ready to serve God. This is the way they responded to the greatness and the glory of God. So Isaiah is carried in this vision into the throne room of God and is utterly overwhelmed by this incredible manifestation of the picture and the presence of God. So this idea that mission begins as we see the character of God leads to the second thing I want you to notice in the text, and that is that our depravity is only understood in light of God's character. Our depravity is only understood in light of God's character. Notice what happens as he sees and experiences the majestic glory of God. Verse 5, and then I said, woe is me for I am ruined. Because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of armies. Now you know this if you've studied the Bible at any length in your life, but the word woe in the scripture is a, is a declaration of judgment. And so when Isaiah sees the manifestation of God, his immediate response is to declare judgment over himself, that he is worthy of nothing but the judgment of God. He didn't grab his phone, try and take a selfie so that he could put it on social media, right? Like this wasn't something he wanted to blog about or call his buddy and tell him about. The only thing Isaiah could think when he comes face to face with the glory of God is, I'm not worthy. I'll just be honest with you. I think in many of our churches in the American evangelical context, we very rarely come face to face with the glory and the majesty of God. And one of the ways I'm convinced of that is because we very rarely find ourselves forced to our knees in humility and worship. The character of God, the personhood of God, the glory of God, the greatness of God, the immediate response that should, it should evoke from us is an abject sense of unworthiness, humility, and even an awareness of our deserved judgment. In other words, it's, 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 it's as if Isaiah was saying, I'm not like him. And I'm not worthy to even be in his presence. Now, what's interesting to me is not only does he declare judgment over himself, not only does he understand that he is qualitatively different than God who is in the room, but his immediate response is to confession and repentance, the presence of God always drives the people of God to confession and repentance. We cannot come face to face with the presence of God apart from being driven to our knees in confession and repentance. So think about your own life. How regularly is confession and repentance a part of your 
spiritual disciplines, a part of your own spiritual practice? When was the last time you distinctly remember sin being revealed to you in your own life and that leading you to confession and repentance? I'm convinced that the mature follower of Jesus is something of a professional repenter. We don't repent the the less the more we grow close to Christ. We repent more the, the more we grow close to Christ. How do I know that in Scripture? Well, consider, if you will, the life of Paul, Paul the Apostle. Earlier in Paul's ministry, how did Paul define himself? Paul said, I'm a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee of Pharisees. There's no one who had as much zeal and passion as I had for the Lord. How did Paul describe himself as he got towards the end of his life? The chief of all sinners. Now, the question we have to ask then is, is, was Paul at the end of his life more sinful than he was at the beginning of his life? Of course not. Paul had grown in his maturity and understanding. He'd grown closer and closer and closer, growing in intimacy with the Lord. And the more Paul grew in intimacy with the Lord, no doubt the more Paul was sanctified, the less Paul probably was grappling with sins. But the more Paul became intimately aware of the depth of his sin. This is sort of one of those unique paradoxes that's existent within uh, the Christian experience. One of the things that worries me about the American evangelical experience, it worries me about my own life oftentimes, is it seems like those who have been with Jesus the longest seem to struggle with pride the most. And that's an oxymoron, biblically. The more we grow in Christ, the more it should drive us to humility. Ask yourself this question when you think about Christian leaders that you know of in the culture around us, in the culture at large. If humility was a primary requirement for somebody to serve in Christian leadership, how many of the leaders that we see in the current Christian evangelical context do we feel like would be qualified to serve? It worries me. It worries me about my own soul, my own heart. But humility ought to be increasing as we find ourselves growing in intimacy with Jesus. That's exactly what happens to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. He comes face to face with the glory of God. He is immediately thrust to his knees in confession and repentance, in humility. He recognized that he was qualitatively different. Too often we can approach service to God as if we're doing God a favor. God, I'm glad, aren't you glad I'm on your team? But the truth of the matter is, we've got to understand the importance of recognizing God's leadership and our lack of ability when it comes to serving God. Like Isaiah, our response to our awareness of the greatness of God should be an acute awareness of sin coupled with a sense of awe and fear in comparison to the majesty of God. Break apart Paul, uh, Isaiah's statement here. Notice that he declares that he is hopeless before God. Then I said, woe is me for I am ruined we see this exact sort of reality. He's, you understand what he's doing here. He's walking through the gospel, Isaiah is. He's understanding his hopelessness. How do we see that in the gospel? Romans chapter three, verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Then what does he go on to say? He declares his judgment or death. Woe is me. This is understanding that he deserves nothing but death, Right? How do we see this in the gospel? Romans chapter six, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. But then notice God's response. God's response is consistent. Every time the person made in the image of God comes to a distinct realization of their sin and falls to their face in confession and repentance, every single time we get the same response from God. What is the response? Look at verse six. Then one of the seraphim flew to me Now, you've got to understand here, the seraphim doesn't fly unless commanded by the Lord, right? 
So God commands one of the seraphim to do this. And the seraphim, verse 6, flies to Isaiah, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. And what what does he do with it? In verse 7, he touches Isaiah's mouth with it. And he says, now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. This is the gospel. Right? This is exactly what's happening. We think of the gospel as sort of a New Testament phenomenon, but it's not. God is consistent from Genesis to Revelation. The entire Bible is the story of God's redemptive activity among humanity. And we see the gospel sort of being manifest in Isaiah's life. Isaiah declares his unworth, uh, unworthiness. He declares his humility. He confesses. He repents. He understands that death is his only just reward. And God sends the angel. And Now, how did Isaiah define his sin? Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And how does God respond to Isaiah's declaration? He purifies Isaiah's lips. And notice that exactly what, uh, what the angel says to him in verse 7. He said to him, now this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. So Isaiah comes into the presence of God, sees the majesty of God, is overwhelmed by the greatness of God, falls to his face in confession and humility, declares his judgment, declares that death is the only right reward for him, and God responds by giving him gospel. God responds by providing forgiveness. 1 John chapter 1, 7 is a New Testament correlation here, right? If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, Excuse me, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin, or the blood of Jesus atones for us. And finally, God gives him hope. Your iniquity has been removed and your sin is atoned for. This is again gospel. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart resulting in righteousness and one confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation. Romans 5.8 is one of my favorite explanations of the gospel. For while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, so he's come into the presence of God. He's seen the majesty of God. He's seen the greatness of God. He's understood his humility. He's declared his unworthiness. God has granted him gospel. You say, all of this is wonderful. It's rich. It's biblical. Thank you, God, for making this so. But what does it have to do with mission? Notice the response in verse 8. In verse 8, we find that mission risk is the only option in light of the character of God. Mission risk is the only appropriate option in light of the character of God. Look at verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, who shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. I want you to notice something about this text. And it's this, that God didn't call Isaiah. It took me decades before I realized that about this text. God does not look out across the crowd and say, Isaiah, I want you. But that's how most of us seem to think about the calling of God, right? We seem to think that the calling to join God on mission is something supernatural and mystical that happens to one or two select people every decade or two in our churches. And the rest of us are just sort of supposed to pray and support those one or two when they're called to join God on mission. But it is intriguing to me that in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, God never calls Isaiah. Instead, what does he do? He looks out over an audience and he says, who shall I send and who will go for us? And the one who responds is the one who has an intimate awareness of the greatness of God, an intimate awareness of their own sin, and who has walked with God through the gospel. In other words... The issue, our mission problem is ultimately a worship problem. 
The reason why the church of Jesus Christ is not joining God on mission is not because we're not obedient enough, though that's true. It's not because the need of the world around us doesn't, uh, doesn't compel us. I think it's because most of us aren't spending time in the presence of God. The necessary response to the presence of God, the awareness of our own depravity, and the experience with the gospel, the response every single time is, God, can I join you on your mission? God looks out across the audience and says, "Here, who will go for us? Who shall I send? And Isaiah says, it's like Isaiah is sitting in the back of the room, throwing his arm up, saying, I'm here, let me do it. I'd be glad to be the one. Because he's so humbled in the presence of God and his awareness of his sin and so enamored with the experience of the gospel. Some of us have been followers of Jesus for so long now. And we haven't come face to face regularly with an exp- in an experience with the person of God, the presence of God, that we've lost an acute awareness of our own sin. We have a Pharisee and tax collector sort of relationship with Jesus. Aren't you glad, God, I'm not like all those Muslims out there? Aren't you God, glad, God, I'm not like all those Democrats out there? Aren't you glad, God, I'm not like all those uh, Gator fans out there? I'm a Gator fan, by the way, y'all. I'm sorry. I know we're outside of Knoxville. I shouldn't tell you that. Everybody's going to tune out and not listen to me anymore now at this point. Jesus saves even us, I promise you. Tim Tebow was on our side, evidence of that, you know. But we do. We do a Pharisee and tax collector sort of thing, right? God, aren't you glad that I'm not like them? And God's just sitting up in heaven thinking, no, you don't get it. You're just like them. You're incredibly just like them. The the response of Isaiah here is to immediately turn and volunteer himself to join God on mission. What's intriguing to me, in the world today, there's around 7 billion people give or take. There's in the ballpark of 7 billion people. And approximately 35% of the world's population has never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. You say, well, Micah, it's a big world. There's hard places. I mean, there's some of the places where they've never heard the gospel. It's just really hard to get there. Trust me, I know. I've been to some of those places. I've backpacked through the jungles of Laos to villages where they've never seen an American before. I mean, they're hard to get through, get to. I've been all over the continent of Africa, and there are places that are hard to get through. My wife, when she and I were missionaries in West Africa, we lived out in the bush with no running water, no, no electricity. I mean, it was, it was no joke. Everybody jokes, you know, when you want to talk about living way out in the middle of nowhere, you say, well, I live out in Timbuktu. Did you all know that Timbuktu is an actual city in West Africa? Yeah, if you went to Timbuktu, West Africa, and drove south through the desert 14 hours, you'd get to where we lived. I mean, we were 14 hours south of Timbuktu. It was in the middle of nowhere. But I don't think that's a justifiable argument. You know why? Because the Coca-Cola company, it took them less than 100 years as a company for 90% of the world to be familiar with their brand name. Less than 100 years for 90% of the world. It is terrifying to me that it is acceptable in the Christian church today for profit margin to be a more compelling argument for evangelization than the glory of God. But there's no way around it, it's true. You say, well, I'm not gifted with the gift of evangelism. First of all, we've radically misunderstood what the gift of evangelism is. The gift of evangelism is not that you are gifted to tell other people about Jesus. The gift of evangelism means, I'm convinced, you're gifted to train others to take the gospel to the nations. 
But I'm convinced, I am profoundly convinced that every person on the planet is a good evangelist, that everyone is a good evangelist. You know how I know this? Because evangelism, broken down, it literally means, all it means is to tell good news. And I've never met a person who is bad at telling good news. My dad, he's a director of missions at um, Salem Baptist Association. It's about an hour or so west of here. My dad adores his grandchildren. When, when my wife and I, we were the oldest in both of our families, when we got married, I mean, at our wedding rehearsal dinner with the microphone in his hand, my dad said, I want a date and time when our first grandkids are arriving. I mean, he has wanted grandkids and he loves grandkids. You know, when I was a kid growing up, if, if you met somebody who had grandkids, they'd pull out their thick wallet and they'd open it up and that, remember that little thing that would fall out with like eight pictures in it, you know, and they'd show you their eight pictures of their grandkids? My dad has one of those, it's called an iPhone. He's got 3,000 pictures of his grandkids in it. I dare you to ask my dad about his grandkids. He will corner you and you're not getting out for an hour or two. He loves his grandkids. He's, he's good at telling people about it. That's what evangelism is. My wife is from Kansas City. We lived there for 10 years. I served two churches in the Kansas City area and went to seminary at Midwestern. We're big Royals fans in our house. And when the Royals won the World Series in 2015, I, I went to one of the games, I flew back from one of the games. I didn't shut up about it for years. I literally, y'all, no joke, I'm literally wearing Kansas City socks this morning. I'm an incredible evangelist for the Royals. There are like three of us out there, but I'm a big evangelist for the Royals. You're an evangelist. Everybody's an evangelist. All of us are good at telling good news. The problem is, for some reason, in our mind, we've sort of bifurcated what it means to tell the good news of the gospel from the good news of everything else in our life. And we've believed the lie that the world around us is uninterested in religious conversations. That's not true. I've learned that almost everybody is interested in religious conversations if I begin by asking them what they believe, not trying to tell them what I believe. If I begin from a position of humility, I've, I've shared the gospel like 16 of the last 18 days to, to Jew, Jewish rabbis and Muslim imams, almost always at their request. Because we start from a place of just saying, tell me what you believe, I wanna know more about your faith. And regularly it flips back to me, where somebody says, well, now tell me a little bit about what you believe. I'd love to tell you about Jesus. And in Christianity, it seems like we're so scared of placing the gospel on a level playing ground with all the other faiths in the world. I'm not scared of it at all. At our church, where I served in Chattanooga, about a year and a half, almost two years ago, we did something called the Global Collective. I invited an imam from Nashville and a rabbi from Chattanooga to come, and I gave them each 10 minutes to tell us what they believe. And then I got 10 minutes to just explain the gospel. I walked through the three circles. If you've ever heard of the three circles as an explanation of the gospel. There was 700 people or so in the audience. Half were Jewish and Muslim. And then we took an hour to do Q&A from the audience about the three faiths. We didn't do it on a Sunday morning. It wasn't a worship service. It was just in our gym on a Sunday evening. But here's what one of the pastors said. He came up to me afterwards, one of the pastors who was from an area church. He said, I was real skeptical about this. He said, but I was amazed at how the gospel sparkled in comparison to the others. Guys, listen to me. We don't have to artificially advantage the gospel. The Bible says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and then the Gentile. I don't have to artificially advantage the gospel. We live in a pluralistic environment. Right now, we, have, we, we now live in a pluralistic environment. Christianity, it's not really on decline like the news tells you it is, because I, I worked at Lifeway Research, we did the data on this, I'm telling you Christianity, evangelical Christianity is not on decline in the US. But we have lost our home field advantage. But I'm not a, afraid of that, I'm not scared of that, because I believe in the power and the beauty of the gospel. Start by inviting your neighbors, your friends, your LGBTQ neighbor or your Muslim neighbor. Invite them to your home. Open your door. Let them eat dinner at your table. Ask them what they believe. 
Show genuine interest in them as an individual and watch as it doesn't open up opportunities for you having experienced the greatness of God, fallen on your face in confession and repentance before him and experienced the gospel yourself to tell them what you've experienced. According to LifeWay Research from 2012, 80% of churchgoers believe it's their responsibility to share their faith while barely more than half had even done so in the last six months. Evangelism has become an aspirational reality sadly, in our culture today. I told you before, as, we, as I sort of get ready to wrap up, I told you before I work with Muslims a lot. In fact, I even wrote a book called Islam in North America or helped edit a book called Islam in North America about how to engage Muslims in North America as a follower of Christ. I love Muslims. I love Muslims. Traveled all over the world working with them, and I work with them here in the U.S. Got some good friends in Chattanooga who are Muslims. One of the things that worries me a lot about Christian and Muslim engagement is the, very, is the fact that Christians are not engaging their Muslim neighbors. I'm just going to use this as an example, a microcosm of the state of American Christianity. According to some new data that came out about two years ago, the American religious group who is least likely to have a relationship with a Muslim are evangelicals. We're the least likely religious group in America to have relationships with Muslims. Jews do incredibly well. Mainline Christians do much better than we do. Catholics, way better than we do at having relationships with Muslims. And yet, almost 85% of people who come to faith in Jesus do so through an existing relationship with someone. So if we want to introduce our Muslim friends to Jesus, we're going to have to have relationships with them. We're going to have to know them. And the same is true of your Jehovah's Witness friends and your Mormon friends and your LGBTQ friends. Only 35% of evangelicals say they even have a personal relationship with anyone who's Muslim. Only 17% of evangelicals say they have a Muslim who's a friend. Only 22% of evangelicals say they regularly interact with Muslims. The truth of the matter is most of us don't have almost any genuine friends who are, follow, who are not followers of Christ. And I'll just tell you, when I was growing up as a kid, I was always told, you need to have acquaintances who are non-believers, but you can't really be friends with them. And the argument was a couple of things. Number one, if you're hanging out where they're hanging out, somebody's going to see you and it's going to damage your reputation. That's a baloney argument. It's a bogus argument. Go back and study the New Testament and ask yourself these questions. How many times was Jesus accused of being a drunk? It happened multiple times because Jesus was hanging out where they were. Jesus spending time with people like Zacchaeus, right? The second, we worry more about our reputation than the lives of people who we believe are lost and apart from Jesus and are going to hell. We've got to love our reputation a little bit less. And then the second issue was we were afraid if we had really close friends who were not followers of Jesus, it would drag us down. How little do we believe about the power of the gospel? That we're convinced that the power of those who've denied the gospel is greater than the gospel power that is in us. We've got to engage the world around us, but we've got to do so from a position of having experienced the goodness and the greatness of God. As we consider the character of God in contrast to the depravity of man, we cannot help but be moved to desperate service as a result of his grace. Much like Isaiah, our response to God is to be aggressively moved to advance the gospel among all peoples for the glory of God. Let me close by sharing a true story. If you've ever read the book by Nick Ripkin called The Insanity of God, you'll find this story in it, but it's a true story. Nick is a fascinating character. He was a missionary whose son died on Easter Sunday years ago and uh, died when they were living in East Africa. And then that really shook his faith. And so he took three years, got some grants, took three years to travel the world and meet with persecuted uh, Christians all over the world. He wanted to know, is the gospel real? Is it really changing people? And then he wrote all their stories down in this book called The Insanity of God. 
It's kind of like a modern day version of the book, Fox's Book of Martyrs. If you've never read that book, I would also highly recommend that. It's one of my all-time favorite books, Fox's Book of Martyrs. But he tells this story of this pastor in the USSR back when it was still communist uh, Russia, communist USSR. He was arrested and thrown in prison for preaching the gospel. And his wife and children were arrested and exiled to live and die in Siberia. One night in the middle of the winter, they were in this dilapidated wooden cabin, his wife and his children, that was their home now. And the three children divided up the last piece of crusty bread that they had. It was all they had to eat in the home. They had one little piece of bread and one cup of watered down tea. And mom refused it and gave it to her children and let them split it up so that they'd have at least some nourishment. Before they ate, they knelt down beside the bed to pray. And one of the kids said, where are we gonna get more food, mama? We're hungry. Do you think papa even knows where we live now? And mom replied, I don't know if your papa knows where we live, but your heavenly father knows exactly where we are and we're gonna ask him to take care of us. And so they prayed, they thanked God for the food that they had and they asked him to provide. 30 kilometers away in the middle of the night, uh, God woke a deacon of a church up and he instructed him, get out of bed, harness your horse, hitch the horse to the sled, load up all the extra vegetables that the church has been harvesting, the meat, the other food the congregation has collected, take it to the family living outside the village. They're hungry. Now this is the way we know he wasn't a Baptist deacon because he began arguing with God. I've never heard of a Baptist deacon who would argue with anyone, let alone God. But anyway, I'm just kidding. My dad was a deacon before he was a pastor. So I'm a deacon's kid and a pastor's kid. Got into all sorts of trouble growing up. But he began to argue with God. He said, Lord, I can't do that. It's below zero outside. If, If I go, my horse might freeze. And if my horse freezes, I might freeze. He said he felt like the spirit of the Lord impressed on him. No, you have to go. The pastor's family's in trouble. He argued with God again. He said, Lord, you've got to know that there are wolves all over. If, uh, if I go out with my horse, they could eat my horse. If they do, they're gonna eat me. I may never make it back. And he said he felt like the spirit of God very clearly said to him, you don't have to come back, but you do have to go. So he did. He made it to their home in the very early pre-dawn hours, kind of the darkness of the pre-dawn and knocked on their door. You can imagine how terrified the family must be after having been assaulted by the KGB, now living in Siberia. They cautiously opened the door and there was a very cold deacon standing there with a sled full of food, provisions for the family. He said, our church collected this food for you, be fed. When this runs out, I'll bring more. The the line in that story that stunned me the first time I read it, and I've It has resonated in my mind over and over and over again is you don't have to come back, but you do have to go. I wonder how many of us who are followers of Jesus are so enamored with the presence of God, the power of God, the person of God, and so overwhelmed by our experience with the gospel that we can't help but join God on mission, even to the point that it could cost us our lives. Every one of the disciples, it cost them their lives with the exception of Judas who betrayed God. He committed suicide. Of the remaining 11 disciples, 10 were martyred for their faith and John, the one exception, was exiled to an island. We like to say today that if you come to Jesus, you know, he's gonna give you purpose and life and satisfaction and I don't necessarily disagree with those things but I dare you to go look at the New Testament in particular and see what happens to the most committed followers of Jesus. They constantly lose their life and their possessions and their friendships and their relationships, but why would they do that? Because they were so overwhelmed with the goodness and the greatness of God. It wasn't a hard transaction for them. We have a mission problem in the church today, but our mission problem is grounded in a worship problem. Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. 
We're gonna pray, and then when we're done praying, we're gonna sing, I think, Holy, Holy, Holy is what we're gonna sing together, which is an incredible song written from this text about the power of God. I wanna ask you, I wanna encourage you to ask yourself this question. Do I have a mission problem? How consistently am I engaging with my neighbors and my friends who don't know Jesus? How am I loving them? How am I communicating to them the gospel of Jesus? If you're not finding yourself regularly joining God on his mission to redeem the world, then maybe, maybe it's because there's a worship problem in your life. You've not regularly come into the presence of God, been awed by his greatness, humbled by your sin, and overwhelmed by the grace of the gospel. Ask God to forgive you. Ask God to help bring you into his presence. Ask God to help you to be someone who regularly enjoys the presence and person of God and finds yourself regularly repenting, confessing and repenting. And ask God to help that compel you to join him on his mission in the world.